Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. I was filming in Greenland, uh, Arctic foxes, and you know, beautiful Arctic landscape, and they are coming down on the rocks. But actually, I would like to show why they are coming down, because there is a military base behind me, and they are just going to the wasteland there. But that I cannot show, and that's actually the truth, because if I show that, the audience doesn't want to watch these films. So it's, it's, it's a kind of tricky to, to smuggle a little conservation message into the films, but I always, always try to do that. And I think this is the, the essence of the wildlife filmmaking. And this is what I like the most about our job, when we can film something which even the scientists didn't know about. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 49, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. My name is Chris G. Parkhurst. I'm your host, I am a Chris documentary filmmaker, and as like well you, as the host you am a documentary filmmaker. I'm here not only to also help like share you, a little bit of Lately, you may have noticed that as part of my intro, I've been including statements you know, about how I'm like you as a documentary filmmaker, or how I too am attempting to live this idea of a documentary life. And it didn't even occur to me until today, but I'm not sure if that's ever coming across as cheesy or maybe even worse, disingenuous somehow. I certainly hope not because, you know, I really do feel those things. And and furthermore, I really do relate to most, if not all even, of the things that you guys go through and experience yourselves as doc filmmakers and certainly in your doc lives. And I hope that that's reflected in my topic selections as well as the doc industry guests that I do have on the show. So I will say it again, like you, I too am a documentary filmmaker. And like you, I've had my challenges and triumphs with being a documentary filmmaker. I've had my struggles and and I've had my little victories with living my documentary life. And that's why I'm here bringing you this show each and every week. And that is why I believe that you guys continue to keep coming back to this show each and every week. And this week, we here in the U.S. are celebrating what is known as Thanksgiving Day. And if you're one of my you know, many listeners who are not American, Thanksgiving is generally a one-day celebration where families all get together to cook a great feast, often consisting of, of meat like turkey or ham and, and then a bunch of carbs or vegetables that are unreasonably candied or otherwise sweetened. And then people will settle in for the evening and, and perhaps watch some American football on the telly or play board games or, or just catch up on how you know cousins and aunts and uncles have, have been over the past year. The idea here is to take a moment and, and share gratitude for one another and give thanks for family and friends and the things that we have in our lives. When I was growing up here in America, it used to be one of my least favorite holidays. It, w- it, was, it was boring in comparison to, to Halloween or, or Christmas, right? No dressing up like Batman and, and, and collecting candy and, and no visits from Santa Claus or waking up to a bunch of Christmas presents you know, under the tree. 
Thanksgiving to my experience growing up was it was when we dressed up in in our clean and crisp clothes that you know we'd probably only ever wear again for the year on Christmas Day, um, you know, and we'd have to wait for hours while Grandma and Mom cooked all the dishes, and our uncles would start drinking and can compare, aka brag about hunting stories that I could honestly could care less about. At some point, they'd drink too much and, and end up arguing about local politics, and it would all get contentious, and, and someone would end up leaving early, blah, 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 blah. At that point in time, there really didn't seem much to be celebrating or thankful for other than finishing the meal and getting the hell out of Dodge. But a funny thing happened on my way to my 30s, when I had long since moved away from home and, and was living on the, on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon. Thanksgiving holiday would start to become something very different when I, when I would stay in Portland and, and celebrate with friends instead of traveling back across the country to be with the extended family. A large contingent of friends, some very close, others loosely connected, would all get together, often at our friend Todd's house, and everyone would, would bring their own dish to, to share at Thanksgiving. Um, we'd play crazy, weird, fun games I, I'd sometimes had never heard of. We'd consume all, all manner of cocktails and beers and beverages, and before we started eating, we, we'd go around the table, and I, and I actually really loved this part of it, we, we'd go around the table and everyone would have a moment to express some thanks and, and gratitude from their last year. <laughs> And then later on, at some point in the middle of actually consuming the, the Thanksgiving feast, we'd all end up standing on our chairs or on the top of the table, actually, if you can believe that, and dancing and singing to songs that were being played on the stereo. And that was just the beginning of what would become a truly joyous and thankful occasion. And I'd like to bring a little bit of that to you in the form of our opening segment of today's episode. So when we come back from a quick break, I'm going to share with you five things that I think that we can all be thankful for in our doc lives. I am Chris G. Parkhurst, but more importantly, this is The Documentary Life. When I first started making documentary films, I was often making them entirely on my own dime. It wasn't that it was a conscious decision on my part. I just really wanted to get out and start making my film. Does this sound familiar to you? When you have a great idea for a doc and the opportunity to get out there and start shooting, you don't want to let something like money get in the way of that. And for a while, it may not. But unfortunately, unless you have unlimited resources, eventually it will. Not having money for your doc film will slow you down, reduce your crew size, your film production values and aesthetics, even the story you're able to tell. And that's not even accounting for the additional stress, frustration, and your inability to work on the project full time. We don't accept that for ourselves anymore, and we don't want you to accept it either. Money is out there for every documentary film, and that includes yours. Every day, money is donated or awarded to documentary films. Why not yours? The trick is in knowing where to look for it and how to secure it for your film. In the Documentary Academy, we have the most comprehensive funding module that you will find anywhere in any course on fundraising for your documentary film. We cover the A to Z on raising funds for your film so you will never again be left wondering where the money's coming from. Enroll in the Academy today by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash academy and start your journey to raising $10,000, or even $100,000 for your documentary film. 
Before we get started with our list of things to be thankful for in our doc lives, I wanted to just quickly say that for, for anyone listening to this episode who is not American, and, and there are quite a lot of you, I was illustrating how I've spent some of my Thanksgiving holidays, you know, right? Painting a picture of, of how they were celebrated. But I, I should probably at least inform you that there is, of course, a historic relevance to the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, I realize I did not talk about it. I'll leave that up to you to investigate should you be further interested. But but I, I, did, I did want to at least mention that. All right, so moving on to my list of five things to be thankful for in your doc life. Number one, the connection. The connection. As filmmakers, we get to connect with a story, find the depth of the meaning, shape the story, express our creativity, speak with like-minded individuals, and, and basically be a part of a creative and vibrant art form and community. I think this may be one of the biggest drivers for a lot of us. You know, it, it may be the single most expressive form of our documentary passions, right? I mean, getting to completely immerse yourself into a subject, a cause, a topic, people's lives. For me, this is the moment that I realize most that I'm doing what I love. You know, maybe I, I, I'm moving around a scene with a camera, kind of, kind of, kind of in the flow, right? Maybe I'm listening to someone tell their incredible story, or maybe it's afterwards when I'm, I'm driving home and I'm thinking about the topics discussed or the footage shot, and, and I'm already, you know, in my mind, I'm already piecing together how it might cut together. These are the moments, you know, whether actually in the moment or, or, or afterwards upon reflection, that I realize how much, how much I love making doc films. And how much I love getting the honor to be able to spend some time with someone or a subject and, and to film it in order to better understand it. And then put this piece, you know, put the pieces together to, to create the story and the edit. And, and then finally, being able to share this little window of a world to the bigger world outside. I think about the moments where I'm, I'm sitting in a dark room and, and I'm going through footages and I'm spending weeks with shots and interviews and, and slowly but surely, I'm forming a relationship with these people. Mind you, it's, it's of course a very one-sided relationship, but, but, but their faces and their words, I'm playing with them on a daily basis and I'm, I'm hearing them on a daily basis. But the things that they're saying, the movements that they're making, I've been able to pay witness to over and over again. And, and I'm able to somehow connect, right? Connect with them in a deeply meaningful way that, you know, perhaps later on, more and more people hopefully will be able to connect with, you know, when they see the film. This in itself, it's such a gratifying experience for me. And this kind of connection, it's what I'm always looking for when I tackle documentary projects. It's part of the motivation that drives me to do doc films, this connection. And you know, it's not even just the connection that I have with the subjects with the film. This extends to the crew as well, you know, the crew I'm working with. The relationships and the connections that I'm making with them, it's all part of the connection process as well. It's all part of the joy of filmmaking for me. The opportunity to work with other like-minded individuals, uh, to collaborate with other film technicians. Because, of course, when it comes to filmmaking, I think that documentary is the ultimate filmmaking collaboration. But, but this experience that I have with the people that I'm working with, it's also part of, of the connection. So that's number one, the connection. Number two in our five things to be thankful for in your doc life Number two is the opportunity to pursue a passion. 
this may not seem like something to be thankful for, you know, that it's something that, that most of us, we just do without thinking, you know, this pursuing of our, of our documentary film passion. But I'm here to tell you that it's something to not only be aware of, but it is indeed worthy of being thankful for. Because not a lot of people pursue their passions. You and I, we know this. We either know plenty of people or know, you know, know of plenty of people that are not living their passions, doing something that they love to do. And I'm not even necessarily talking about people who, who, who are doing the nine to five job and, and job they don't really much like doing. Um, of course, yes, sure. I, I am personally very thankful that I am no longer, uh, for instance, running a valet staff at a hotel or, or writing code uh, for an internet company. I'm very thankful that, that, that I get to make a living doing what I love. But that's maybe the obvious example of, of what I'm talking about here. And really, it may not even be appropriate for a lot of you, maybe even slightly insulting. And, and Because not all, not all of you work in the film and TV or, or video production industry at all. A number of you have what I like to call a, a straight job. Um, you're doing the 9 to 5 thing at an office somewhere or, or say a law firm or something down the street. But in the evenings and or on the weekends, you are out there and you're shooting on, on your film project. And that works well for you. In, in fact, for some of you, it's a very conscious decision not to mix your passion with your employment. And so for the purposes of this list, I'm talking more about being thankful for getting to pursue your passion at all. Many people don't necessarily have something that they consider a passion. To them, they are passionate about coming home after their shift at work and, 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 and sitting down with their, their dinners in front of the cable TV. Like to me, that's, that's sad and, and, and that sounds judgmental, but, but I really don't mean for it to come out that way. I guess that I, I just think that we shouldn't all take for granted that we have a passion or that we have documentary film as a passion. Um, I think that we should feel fortunate and honored that we have documentary film as our passions and that we have a passion at all. You know, that each and every day or, or whenever, in whatever way we choose to express it, we get to be an active part of our passion. We get to wake up in the morning and feel moved and feel excited by something and we get to act on it even. That's pretty awesome stuff. Not everybody gets to do that. You, you know, in fact, it really wasn't that long ago that, that being able to produce, let alone distribute your own films, was not necessarily an easy thing for most of us to do. Now, with, with digital technology and, and with the availability of, of relatively inexpensive equipment, we are afforded the opportunity to make films. And that's something that can be easily forgotten, especially if, if digital video has been around long enough that, that you didn't necessarily even ever have to shoot on film. It can be easy not to remember that it wasn't long ago at all, that, that, that if you didn't have connections to, say, significant money or, or have a trust fund um, yourself, you literally couldn't afford to make films. So, so yeah, let, let's all be thankful that we not only have a passion and that it happens to be documentary film, but that for the most part, we have the means and capacity to be expressing that as much as we'd like. Number three, we get to tell someone's story. That we get to showcase, highlight, uh, tell, share people's stories to others, whether that's local communities, uh, on a national level, or even internationally. We can give people a voice, whether it's for a cause, something of historical or cultural significance, or whether it's the simple sharing of a life, a life tale that has some meaning to someone. 
you know, back in one of my earlier episodes, a while before the, the, the newer weekly format, actually, I had a shared conversation with storyteller Joel Ben Izzy, someone who's made his living doing what he loves to do, which is tell stories. In many ways, I equate what Joel does to what we do as doc filmmakers, tell the stories of others in a way that we can share these stories with the rest of the world. Joel gets to do it on a more regular, perhaps more intimate even, basis, and certainly on a live platform. And I bring up Joel because the sharing of stories is the basis for how he makes his living. And I know that for him, it is a critical part of his passion for storytelling, this idea of taking someone's story, whether it be a personal story or maybe a more historical or cultural narrative, you know, whatever the case may be. He then gets to take this story and make it his own. He writes out his version of a story, plays with the languaging of it, uh, the pacing of how he tells it, maybe the, the character representation, and he shapes this into a story that he can then take to the stage or you know or whatever the platform might be, and he can tell this story to another group of individuals in the hopes of perhaps putting a smile on someone's face or tears from, from somebody else, or maybe even move someone to take some kind of action, or at least think about something from another person's perspective. And that's what we do, is it not? We take a bunch of interviews, other people's stories, if you will. We shoot some B-roll. We head into the editing room with our transcripts and our footage. We put some shots and sound bites together, eventually forming scenes. And then finally, we have a film. And if you're anything like me, I think that you want to at least move people with your film. Perhaps open someone's hearts and minds to a place or or people they'd never been exposed to before. Or if you're a social activist filmmaker, um, you, you want to move someone enough to cause them to take some sort of positive action. I know that there are a number of you doc lifers that are out there shedding light on, on people who may be in less than fortunate situations. Or you're out there trying to expose some of the, you know, the injustices of the world. For you, you are hopeful that your doc will be able to directly impact some positive change in the world. Whatever the case may be, and for whatever reason you're doing your documentary films, it's worth taking a moment to pause and reflect on the opportunity that we have to tell people's stories. Which brings us into number four, we get to share someone's story. And this is following on from getting to tell someone's story. We give an audience an opportunity to reside in somebody else's brain, life, or experience in a way like no other. We get to educate them, entertain them, take them to places and situations they might not ever, ever experience um, or even ever know existed. Other than perhaps reading a first-hand account in a book, you know, like an autobiography, for example, I can see no better way to get as close to experiencing and truly understanding, appreciating what someone's life experience or experiences, what they might be like, um, than through documentary film. Think about it. There's a reason that documentary has become a much desired stylistic way of making commercial spots now, you know, for a company or product. Um, uh, there's a reason that something like legal videos, which we've briefly mentioned on the show before, uh, legal videos have become a very real way uh, for prosecutors and defendants alike, you know, for them to show to a jury how an incident occurred or, or how a client's day-to-day -day life, how it's affected by a certain event. 
Um, those examples are both potentially very powerful ways in which someone can use images and sound bites to represent a person or product in a way that moves a viewer on a very deeply emotional level. Uh, thinking of one of my own examples, of which which there are many, uh, what better way than for me to go to Haiti and, and, and to spend some time with people devastated by the earthquake of 2010 in, in Port-au-Prince and with the people of Relief International and International Humanitarian Organization who, who happen to be some of the first responders, responders and afterwards one of the few who stayed long enough after to see the work through. What better way for me, or really Relief International, who hired me to make some short films, what better way for them to show their donor-funding community what kinds of programs their kind donations were funding? Or... Or one of your fellow doc lifers, Aaron M., who is, who's recently come back from Laos, who along with my home away from home, Cambodia, was one of the most bombed countries on the face of the planet. A country whose political and social landscapes were torn apart by years of secret bombing by the Americans during the American Vietnam War. For her, making this doc film about the secret bombing and, and showing the effects on Lao local populaces decades after the war's been over, what an outstanding way to, to present to the world some of the things that happened during that time in that part of the world. Or what better way than for, for fellow doc lifers Adam and Michael to bring the story of the protests at Standing Rock last year you know, during the actions to, to stop the Dakota access, access pipeline than to jump headlong in to their doc project, um, and I believe that that project has a working title for your grandchildren. The ability to film and then share these stories and, and have people, meaning an audience, experience how, how others live their lives, it's a very powerful and sacred thing. And you already know that I consider documentary film and documentary filmmaking to be just that, a sacred thing. So yes, the ability to share someone's story in a visual and oral medium like documentary film and to educate them, to entertain them, to take them to places and situations they might you know, never not only experience but ever even perhaps know existed, that is a very, very sacred thing and therefore not something to be taken lightly and, uh, and really to be thankful for. And rounding out our five things to be thankful for in your doc life, Number five is family. Yep, the big daddy of all Thanksgiving expressions of gratitude, family. There's no one on this planet that's going to support your doc life more than your family. And you need that. Because without the support of your family, it's an extremely difficult creative existence to maintain. My wife is a massive supporter of my doc life. And when I say doc life, as always, I, I don't simply mean documentary film. It's everything that goes along with it. The good, the bad, the ugly, and in my case, sometimes the very ugly. Um, when it comes to the creative life, there are definitely times where I can be a pretty unbearable person to be around. For example, day or two of an edit um, where I, you know, I, I express any and all forms of angst and anxiety and frustration. You know, as I try to to make sense of all of this footage and story that I'm working with, it's it's always the same. Uh, you, you can ask Steph literally that, that first day of any sort of edit, whether for a job or or a doc project, I am a bear to be around. It's kind of like if I haven't eaten for a few hours, I, I become cranky agitated, pretty short, not fun to be around at all. Uh, but once I've eaten, or in the case of, of an edit, once I've consumed some of the footage and transcripts and started putting clips onto a timeline, 
things become much easier and, and, and I suddenly become a much more tolerable person to be around. But I, I'm getting off the subject. This is not about editing, of course. That was, that was parts of the last couple of episodes. This, this is about family and their support. And I am fortunate enough to have family that understands what I do and why I do it in, in terms of my doc life. I really do think that it's important that, that you don't go about living and leading your doc life and making your doc films all on your own. We've talked many times on this show how documentary filmmaking, how it can often be a fairly solitary endeavor in, in that we aren't generally functioning with, with sizable crews. Um, we're often spending endless hours alone in, in a room on our edits where we're spending our own money. Uh, so having the support of loved ones can be really helpful at times. Now, when I say family, that also encompasses our documentary filmmaking community a la you guys, our doc filmmaking brothers and sisters. We should all be considering one another as family as well. And more than that, we are family who all have first-person accounts and experiences for what one another goes through living our doc lives. This show can attest to that. We all have shared experiences that we're talking about all of the time here on the podcast, whether it be from doc industry guests, whether it be via our doc life or emails, um, the networking and exchange of ideas on the TDL community Facebook group page, we're all tied into what one another is doing. And we all share a tribal bond because of it. We are all family, we doc lifers, and we should not shy away from ever expressing or acknowledging that. Like ever. So let's one more time go back to the five things to be thankful for in your doc life. Number one, the connection. Number two, the opportunity to pursue a passion. Number three, we get to tell someone's story. And number four, we get to share someone's story. And number five, family. Now, I would really love to hear how you guys are thankful for your doc lives. And, and, and please, do not think you need to be American here, here to talk about this. If you haven't figured this out already, I am here to tell you this doc life, it doesn't have any nationality. And it certainly ain't American as far as I'm concerned. This is global, as evidenced by the mere fact that we're now downloaded in 127 different countries around the world. And by the way, let us all take a moment and be thankful for that. Because that is just incredible. Documentary brothers and sisters from 127 different countries. Wow. <laughs> I would never have dreamt that a year and a half ago, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so, so much. But yeah, I really want to hear what you guys are thankful for in your own doc lives. So either send me an email at chris at parongfilms.com or make a comment in the show notes for this episode. Or maybe even better yet, get on the Documentary Life Community Facebook group page and share some of your bits of gratitude with us. That would be very, very cool. It is now time for the Doc Life or Community Question of the Week. This week's Doc Life or Community Question of the Week it comes from a good friend and colleague, Bradford Rogers, a.k.a. the Multimedia Ninja. Bradford was on the show a couple of months back. You might remember it was episode number 43. Now, instead of an actual instead of an actual email, Bradford left some voicemail that I thought was brilliant. He was he was referring to a recent episode segment where I was talking about ways to edit efficiently. I know a lot of you really appreciated that episode as well. So you know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to share that with you now. 
I think it's lovely, and I think it's thankful, and therefore very appropriate for this week's podcast. Captain Parkhurst, hey, it's Bradford, and uh, in a way, good that you uh, didn't pick up because hopefully you are working on something and are doing as you preached in your most recent episode that I just finished, uh, which I do similarly, and actually leave the phone on silent and do not disturb pretty much all the time. Uh, but anyway, I just had some uh, thought immediately upon hearing the editing part of your uh, uh, episode, and as soon as you started talking about efficiency, I thought of this story that I just now have revised and paraphrased and uh, whatever, and there was this gentleman who was uh, traipsing through the jungle looking for the lost kingdom of Dunn, and uh, he, had, he had 10 days to get there, and would run out of water or something and die if he didn't make it in 10 days or whatever. But he had a very sharp machete, the tools were sharp, and he had some shortcuts for traversing difficult ground as, as rapidly as possible and saving some time that way. And he was making 10 miles a day good through the jungle. Uh, so he was tentatively excited about that. But there was one huge problem. He was in the wrong jungle. So the minute you said efficiency, I immediately thought, ding, 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 ding. Alarm, alarm. The larger point uh, is my religious opinion, is effectiveness. Uh, you've probably heard that efficiency versus effectiveness thing. Both important, but I actually have a blog piece sitting in my WordPress, which I am not promising to release soon because I'm trying to work on the book but it's called Why You Must Work From the Top Down. And it's talking about how, among other things, you know, as an artist, you have a, uh, a tendency, gift, or curse to be interested in, in manipulating the details, and that is indeed where the genius lies. But in order to finish some of these things, you have to do the opposite, take a strategic approach. Uh, and in, in one good illustration in my case, not get involved in playing with the cool new transitions you got from the universe plug-in, but do the edits first because you may not need transitions in those places. It's just but one example. Um, but I think for people who haven't been editing long enough um, to have it pounded into their heads, the proper strategic workflow choices, or people like me that bounce from one type of thing to another and back, so haven't really established that or, or have too much of that little attention deficit detail sort of thing, OCD and the details going on, to work top-down strategically by prioritizing what is the most effective thing to do first and having a plan and going from there. Uh, anyway, the young Kiwi lady uh, came to mind uh, immediately as well when, when you were telling her story. So forgive the long anecdote. <laughs> I was, I was going to converse with you about that, but I hope I'm not too presumptuous in, uh, in uh, regurgitating my uh, opinion on those things. But... Uh, Anyway, I thought that might be of interest, and I uh, look forward to uh, chatting with you shortly about your, uh, uh, excuse me, just passed the police car. Anyway, uh, appreciate your man uh, headed to the boat, and I will talk to you soon, hopefully from there. Thanks for that voicemail, Captain Rogers. Thank you for sharing those thoughts with me, thereby allowing me to share it with my listeners. Like I said, super appropriate given you know the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S. and, and the overall tone of this episode. 
So, so yes, muchas gracias for that. I, I hope you had yourself a kick-ass Thanksgiving wherever you may have found yourself, perhaps somewhere, you know, boating off the coast of, of Florida in J.C. Sales. I would like to make a quick mention that, that Bradford's finishing up on his book, How Not to Sell, and, and rumor is there may be a podcast supporting this book coming soon. I really do hope so because I find Bradford not only an extremely talented sound technician and storyteller, but he's a damn good fellow as well. And that, my fellow Doc Lifers, is a combination that should never be taken lightly. If you'd like to offer up some feedback of your own or, or give us some topic or guest suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at chris at barongfilms.com and you too could be included in a future Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week segment. When we come back, I will sit down with a documentary filmmaker who happens to spend a lot of time out in exotic wilderness environments, shooting animal life that most of us will probably only ever get to experience, maybe through his films. Our shared conversation with the documentary industry guest, wildlife photographer Zoltan Torek, up next. Two weeks ago, we announced the Documentary Life Community Facebook group, a place for fellow doc lifers to meet up online and share valuable information, collaborate with other filmmakers, and provide others with constructive feedback, advice, and support on documentary-related topics. It's a community where one can feel comfortable sharing the struggles and challenges one faces, because as we know from this podcast, there are most likely others who have already experienced the same thing in the past, or who are currently experiencing it, or who will at some point experience it. It is a community that shares valuable information in a way that can help others and allow members to garner support when they most need it. This community fosters relationships and it builds connections and friendships worldwide. One cursory look at the Documentary Life Community Facebook group will tell you all you need to know. There are already dozens of doc lifers like yourself who are taking advantage of this wonderful opportunity to further become a part of the TDL community. To be a part of the Documentary Life Community Facebook group, you can search for it on Facebook and apply from there. I will also be putting a direct link to the page up in the show notes for this episode. If you have any questions or concerns or need help with the Documentary Life Community Facebook group, please don't hesitate to reach out to my wife, the producer of TDL, Stephanie. And her email is stephanie at barongfilms.com. Do take a moment and check out the Documentary Life Community Facebook group today. Where the Danube leaves the mountains, Hungary begins. A country like no other in Europe influenced by the rhythms of its rivers. Hungary's inhabitants have learned to cope with alternating floods and droughts. This is an ancient cultural landscape where wildlife still finds refuge. Zoltan Tarek, I'm so excited to have you on the program today. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this when I first reached out to you. Uh, I came by your name via the, the, the Documentary Life Community Facebook group page. It was within a, a thread that, that some doc lifers had been writing, and they were talking about wildlife cinematography and, and wildlife documentaries in, in general. And your name came up a couple of times, uh, a couple of times within the thread. And uh, apparently you are, you are a known man, Zoltan. Uh, uh, people are inspired by your work, man. 
<laughs> oh my god i mean first of all i'm excited to be in the program too and actually i didn't know that i'm a known man uh, <laughs> in this industry but of course i travel a lot and i yeah. used to appear on on film festivals uh, all over the world so i meet lots of uh, colleagues and of course actually i got my 75th award uh, yesterday on the post which <laughs> came from from france so 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 maybe maybe that's behind this, but I, I'm, I'm I'm I don't know I'm I'm a bit surprised, but it's, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it about this that uh, uh, fellow colleagues uh, they mentioned my name on a Facebook well, page. And congratulations again on, on another award. Um, I've obviously immersed myself a little bit in your work since uh, since your name came up and since I knew that we were going to have you on the program. Part of part of why I'm excited to have you on is is we haven't really spoken with a wildlife photographer, a wildlife c- cinematographer, um, on the program yet. So to be able to speak to someone um, with the caliber such as yourself, um, I, I just think it's going to be a, a great conversation. So so thank you again for for joining us today, Zoltan. You are very welcome. I'm looking forward to this. I'd like to ask you how and when did did wildlife cinematography when did this start to happen for you at, at what point in life like did you make a, a conscious decision to shoot wildlife or, or did this this evolve through the course of time in filmmaking no this was a clear decision at my age when I was 13 years old and uh, actually my very first uh, five minute uh, long film on a VHS tape <laughs> uh, that was the time when I recorded about a small uh, little uh, chick, uh, um, uh, left-wing chick. And actually, the motivation came from TV because I watched lots of documentaries. And yeah. uh, there was, uh, I'm, I'm from Hungary. I'm Hungarian. I don't live there anymore. But uh, I was inspired by, um, by a series there, which uh, showed uh, wildlife documentaries i mean every sunday and there were a german there was a german uh, wildlife filmmaker and there was a program about his life uh-huh. and I, I he's very famous he died in 93 in 93 dieter Lager, that's his name dieter. and uh, yeah but it's it's pretty interesting because i used his microphone later on some years later <laughs> on the shoot <laughs> so wow. it's, it's it's uh, yeah it's very interesting how life uh, works sometimes. So actually, I I grew up uh, near a forest and a swamp. So obviously mm. I was out in the wilderness as much as I could. I mean so-called wilderness in Europe, in yeah. Central Europe, and I really was looking f- for something which fits uh, for this kind of activity that I'm outdoor. I'm doing creative work and I love animals, of course. So this is how the decision came. And I remember I was 13, actually, because uh, I digitized those VHS tapes. So I have it on my computer. So, and actually, you know what? Still, no they are watching. No way. You still have yeah. that. Is, does that, is, that, uh, is that out there in the Internet at all? Any of that footage? Oh no 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 no! This, but maybe that's not a bad idea. I will I will post it on. Facebook. Oh man, Zoltan, <laughs> that, that would be amazing to see that. If if you have that uh, somewhere and you could digitize that and post that, uh, that would be incredible to to show people to see. You know, kind of get into the mind of 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 a thirteen year old who's thinking that they want to do this uh, perhaps as as a life pursuit. And of course, indeed, you would. Um, I just think it'd be great to see that. So if you ever do, please let me know. <laughs> yeah, I will do so. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Um, well, you would you would go on to uh, do some schooling in geography. So, so how did this? How did you end up in film and TV production from there? 
You know, uh, for nature and wildlife filmmaking, I think there are two different ways to get in or just to get some knowledge. Of course, one way is you are coming from the field of biology, and I know lots of colleagues who actually uh, come from that field and, and right. geography. So right. this is the route which I, uh, which I chose because actually there was no other way. I mean, uh, oh. in, in, in the 80s and 90s, or you can be a filmmaker, but, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty different because you are out on the field and you just don't, you don't only have to make uh, a cinematography work, but you have to judge the situation. You have to know the animals because basically otherwise you are a person on location who doesn't know what he or she is filming. That's right. So that's, that's, that's pretty obvious. So... Then, of course, I took some filmmaking courses. I was in, in, in kind of uh, master schools and schools. And, uh, but the most, impo- most importantly, you have to get this knowledge um, from firsthand uh, from someone who is, who is much more experienced. Right. So I became an assistant uh, for a Swedish company, a Swedish-American company, the Scandinavian Films. They did very nice. Uh, films, right. I saw that. Yeah, very, very nice documentaries uh, in the early 2000 years. And uh, and this is how it started the international career. But before that, uh, I made some short TV programs for local television stations, mm. mo- mostly about animals. I mean, like even pet animals. Yeah. And I learned a lot from that. So actually, later on, I could use this crazy TV documentary work, right, right. you know, which are more like reality show. <laughs> but... But you could use it. I mean, I can. I feel it still today that I can. I can uh, use these uh, skills uh, which mm. I got during those uh, crazy TV right, years. Right, right. It, it's very interesting because there's something um, that jumps out at me in 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 this process. I, again, you've made at this point early on. You've made a conscious decision that you want to be a wildlife cinematographer or, or a wildlife doc filmmaker, um, and, and 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 in as part of that decision. You decided I'm going to go to I'm going to immerse myself in nature and I'm going to go to school for geography. I'm not going to school for film and TV production. And I think that there's something really interesting to point out there. You know, I myself have have said over the years, if I were to go back and do something differently in terms of my education early on, I wouldn't have gone. I, I feel like perhaps I would. What I might do differently is is not go to not go to school for film and TV broadcasting or communications media. I, I feel like perhaps it might have been more advantageous for me um, to go to school. Maybe I, I might go back and instead do anthropology um, because a lot of a lot of the film that I do, a lot of the film work that I do tends to be in cultures, and particularly in Southeast Asia. And mm-hmm. I love to immerse myself in cultures, and and it's a lot of what I film when I'm doing doc work in those countries. And I feel like an anthropology background would would help with with some of the films that that maybe have a more ethnographic film taste to them. So um, it is very interesting mm-hmm. that you made that conscious decision early on. Yes, you wanted to be a wildlife doc filmmaker, and for you to best do that going to school for geography and or as well as immersing yourself in in nature at an early age was the way to do that as opposed to going to film school i love that that's yes. that's so intriguing yeah this is exactly how it happened and of course but but i i, I was uh, i was uh, uh, pretty much into photography first and uh, and then i mean as soon as uh, the cameras became viable yeah. more than of course uh, you know this this very short film at uh, this five minute uh, 
so-called film which i took at my age of 13 mm. i recorded in a vhs right. camera and in that time it was super expensive i'm speaking about the mid 80s so actually my parents had to sign the paper oh. which, where i borrowed this camera from that they would pay <laughs> i have no idea where they would have been able to pay that camera if something happened to it yeah so <laughs> In 2007, you would form with, with, with some other gentlemen, you'd form a partnership, right? And you would form your own company, Wild Tales. Why was it important for you to form Wild Tales as a company? Uh, because I wanted to pitch my own stories. You know, in this business, uh, in the nature documentary, if you make it as a living, there are two ways. Either you make you make a freelance work. So it yeah. uh, works that, uh, I mean, smaller companies or big production companies, they hire you for sequence work. So you just travel here or there for three, four weeks, uh, or, or you just uh, make uh, one project for them, uh, like I did. So basically, I got a contract for a film like about Iceland for two years, which is very nice. Yeah. But I decided that I really would like to make my own ideas. And uh, for that, I had to have a company. So after then, uh, I started to pitch my ideas, and luckily, ever since, I managed to film my own uh, stories. The water fills the dried riverbeds in the Gemints forest. It keeps coming and coming. With no sign of stopping. An exodus begins. The ants hurry to rescue their eggs, their only hope of a future. Within hours, the flood overwhelms the forest. The game is agitated. Wild boar and red deer are good swimmers, but there is no dry land left. In Gimmins, the water level can rise by eight meters in a couple of days. In this day and age, when we talk about the environment um, and we talk about this idea mm. of climate change, I feel like you guys, the wildlife cinematographers and wildlife photographers that are out there, just by nature of being in these environments and spending time around animals and spending time in nature, you guys must have a, some sense of, of, of what climate change means for you on a personal level or what's happening to the environment around you. Um, is that the case for you as well, Zoltan? Oh, yes, more than you can imagine. And yeah. partly... You know, it's 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 a kind of sad topic because we really see this from the first hand. For instance, and right. we we even feel the effect in our work. For instance, I can tell the story. You know, like when I was filming in the Everglades, and you can see the climate change effects uh, very well because the season they are just messed up. And and the other thing is, whatever we are working on in these days, we cannot count 
on the patterns anymore, the weather oh, patterns. Wow, wow. So it's, it's you know, or, or te- I tell you another story, you know, when I was filming about the mayflies in, in Central Europe, there is a very nice phenomenon uh, on, on a river when millions of mayflies come up uh, at the end of June, just for one or two days. Mm. And this you can count on very well. You know, this is have been this have been going on for thousands of tens of thousands millions of years since yeah. the river is there. Yeah. But you know, 2010, we are really we promise you promised this in the script that you are going to deliver. But finally, on on, on in that year, oh, it no. just didn't happen because there was a big big flood on the river, which usually doesn't happen in that time of oh. the year. So it's just washed away. So it it happens all the time, and not uh, only to us, but to 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 all of my colleagues all over the world uh, that you basically cannot uh, count on the happenings as they happened previously i mean for hundreds of years so there is definitely a big change uh, in the world and not only about phenomenon but you can see on the landscape as well right right that there are changes okay i don't have to tell the story about the glaciers because everybody know know yeah. that yeah but uh, like like disappearing animals, uh, the species. So it's it's a, it's a kind of uh, shocking what's going on. <clears throat> and and I and there's another topic. If I can step on into this, please, because it's a big big question which I raise uh, uh, in myself uh, and I ask from myself very often that is this good what we are doing? Because you see very often what the audience want to see is just some beauty the beautiful nature untouched wilderness and and this is not true so some you know wherever i go even i just came back from siberia you can see the human presence everywhere even in the remotest places right so so it very often it disturbs me that are we helping or we are lying and we are just making the things even worse because because people still believe that this kind of uh, wildlife and landscape still existing because what we are showing, you know, is just lots of birds, rich wow. wildlife, wow. Uh, untouched wilderness. But you see, just you change the camera angle, just you start to shoot <laughs> what's behind you. And that's a different. I, I can tell you a good story. Like I was filming in Greenland, uh, Arctic foxes and, you know, beautiful Arctic landscape and they are coming down on the rocks. But actually, I would like to show why they are coming down, because there is a military base behind me and they are just going to the wasteland there. So so but that I cannot show. And that's actually the truth, because if I show that the audience doesn't want to watch these films. So it's 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 a kind of tricky to to smuggle a little uh, conservation message into the films. But I always, always try to do that, at least a little bit. Because if you make an environmental documentary, wildlife documentary, it's it's the audience really don't like it. Right, uh, right. They don't like it. But there is a change in this one as well. Luckily, I see. So 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 there are some good films out there. For for a, say aspiring wildlife filmmakers, give us some very maybe practical exercises that we can be doing. And 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 I think of something as basic as. Okay, what are you doing? How can you best practice if, if, for example, you're trying to shoot, you know, that eagle that's up in the sky? What are, what's a good way to practice um, how we should be filming that? And 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 yeah, just some basic ideas. <laughs> that's, for instance, a very interesting question about the eagles because mm. you you know they are very cautious animals, extremely cautious animals. <laughs> so how we did that, for instance, that it, it in wildlife filmmaking, in my opinion, the the preparations. Uh, 
are very important. So it's all about uh, preparations and and research. So for instance, this uh, sequence uh, with the eagles, for instance, in the nest or up in the sky, mm. uh, we start one year earlier, which means that uh, we put some uh, remote, uh, some boxes, I, I would say, uh, boxes uh, just to the nearby, uh, just to, to a tree which is very close to the nest. Mm. So the birds uh, get used to it. We don't go there any, anymore. Uh, so we just put a plastic bottle into this box, which looks like a lens. Right. So when they get used to this, after like one year, when they start the nesting, during the night, we climb up to the tree and then we change to the remote camera. Right. So when the sun comes up, they just see the same thing. It's just kind of, uh, you know, like a, it looks like the plastic bottle, uh, <laughs> uh, the lens. And then we, we, we just uh, have our tent under the tree and uh, we just control the remote uh, camera. Uh, via cables or Wi-Fi. Oh, uh, so this okay. is so so the animals have to get used to to our presence or to the uh, to the uh, equipment presence. Just they don't know that what's that. Right. So for instance, this took a year uh, preparations. I mean, we have to go several times just to check and make the birds uh, used to this uh, special device, a box, and which is later changed into a camera. Incredible, incredible. It's uh, it's it's far removed from even your early days as, as a thirteen year old in terms of in terms of just going out with a camera and shooting. You're doing <laughs> preparation a year ahead of time, and in fact, your hands are only on the camera when you set it up in the tree. When you finally get to that point of setting up in the tree, you're actually down in a tent and you're controlling everything um, via remote. Yes, 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 exactly. Who is building? Speaking ahead of time, who's building? And when is this being built? The story and the narration. And I ask that because is the story in the script, is that prepared before you go out and shoot? Or are you shooting the footage and then you create the story afterwards? No, the first, the first. So first you have to you have to know what you are going to film. So there must be a story. Otherwise, you know, if I pitch my ideas, no one, no one is going to give me, you know, this big money for wildlife films. Uh, so you have to present what you are going to film. And I think this is the reason that I, this is the, one of the stressiest works out there. Yeah. Because you promise something, you get money for it, you have a contract, and you have to deliver. So what about the, <laughs> if the animals, they don't, uh, they don't collaborate uh, or they don't want to cooperate with you uh, or you are unlucky? Well, like so the mayflies, what, what do you do in that instance when you don't have anything to show for the funding that's been given? Uh, we were finally lucky because uh, because then I was really in a panic. So in that case, I was I was calling lots of people and how can because we basically we couldn't really approach uh, the river because of the flood so finally finally i got one place and they knew that there are going to be uh, mayflies perhaps perhaps so i took a risk and i drove there it was very far and just for for like half hour there were mayflies no but otherwise way. then you you have to buy stock shots or there Ugh. is one thing the time that usually I make a contract that we have like two, three years. So, right. for instance, the Everglades film, it took uh, more than three years to make. The White Hunger, it was two years. Okay. Iceland was two years. Lemming was two years. Now I'm going to make a four-year long. So, so you really have time. If something goes uh, wrong, then you still can try next year or the year after. But uh, basically, uh, 
what I used to say that I write a script, I like it, I write a storyline, and this is what I present as a pitch mm. uh, to the different TV channels, and uh, and then usually I can deliver like sixty percent of the stories. That's that's my ratio usually, but they don't have to worry about the other forty percent because mm. other other good stories come up. And usually this is how you end up. You know, you sit in the hide in the blind you plan to film something and then another animal appears and doing something crazy mm. which perhaps nobody ever seen uh, nobody ever filmed <laughs> uh, and perhaps even the researchers uh, never ever have uh, seen it so actually i have a couple of these kind of sequences and and i think this is the the essence of the wildlife filmmaking and this is what i like the most about our job when we can film something uh, which even the scientists didn't know about The fisherman is looking after his aquatic livestock. He makes a large hole in the ice to let poisonous gases out and oxygen in. He knows that fish are wintering beneath his feet. Catfish. These otherwise solitary animals gather in groups during winter and stay together until spring. They don't hibernate, but remain active without hunting. You know, in Wild Hungary, early on, there is a there is a there's a great sort of transition shot, and and you're going from you're filming this ice fisherman, and and he's cut a hole in the ice in at this fishing hole, and and you go from this tight this tight shot of his hand removing the last bit of ice. And then you go down, you, the camera goes down through the ice, through the water, and down into the catfish where he's go- going to be fishing. I'm curious, how did you get this particular shot? Obviously, there's a dissolve that happens once you get into the water. But but were you did you have like something like a GoPro on 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 a pole no. and you kind of dip down there? How did you do? How did you make it happen? No, uh, this is this was actually quite a crazy operation. And the credit doesn't go to me. Mm. I mean, I had a special underwater cinematographer with me who was very, very keen to film this. But first of all, this is one of the scenes, sequences, which has been never filmed before. So I, I knew this story from Fisherman uh, that during winter time, uh, the catfish, they come together. But nobody yes. has ever seen this because they knew this, that they go out for fishing and sometimes they catch, uh, you know, just several catfish in a row because they know the place. Right. But where is this place? So I went out with this uh, guy, a good friend of mine, and we, we we went out to the same lake like seven times or so seven days. Yeah. And, and he couldn't find them. and But this was not a big lake. Uh, a small lake and one third of the lake was still not frozen so mm. so the, on the first couple of days uh, we used the rope so in case if he lost the way back i just could pull him back oh, wow. but okay. finally but finally found the catfish and he was so excited that actually she disturb, uh, he disturbed them a bit so the mud came up and he had to return and the next day we went there so he was very very careful right. Uh, but uh, uh, so the catfish they didn't uh, mind him and I was extremely happy about this footage because this is crazy I mean it's, it's really lovely about this uh, huge catfish are doing that they are they are together like in, in you know like I don't know how many are on that shot but like 15-20 mm. mm. 
But my friend lost the way back and he didn't have a rope. Oh, wow. So actually I was waiting for him outside and then I saw, I heard some noise and his knife came through the, uh, through the ice. And first I was so stupid because of what, what is he doing? I saw that maybe, maybe, maybe the bubbles, uh, they disturbed the shot. So actually, I was just watching, and he's, he was cutting a little hole, and finally his hand came through the eyes, and he was waving me, and then I knew there is a problem. <laughs> so I had to run with the axe and, and release him from the eyes. Whoa, so this whoa. is how it happened. Yeah. But it took seven days. So five days we didn't find the, the catfish. So my, my underwater friend, uh, cinematographer friend, was just swimming around. And the last two days we, we got this crazy nice footage because... And I was very happy about this because nobody has ever filmed this before. But and, yeah. and I think I think perhaps you. And I love the story, by the way. Um, and 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 perhaps it's a great illustration of what, what that might be like. So thank you for that. My question was more: there is a specific moment where 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 the fisherman puts his he removes he takes his hand and he removes the last piece of ice. He has created his hole where he's going to fish. And you, you're following his hand to the water, and then the camera goes under the water. How did you film that particular shot? Uh, we have a special lens for that, right? So it's uh, we of course we have a very special lens, and and uh, this is a uh, this is a long. I don't know how much I can go into technical details, mm-hmm. but this is a wide angle and uh, uh, long uh, lens, which which you can merge underwater. So it looks like it's a boroscope. So, so this is how we filmed, and oh. then I knew exactly. So, where is the camera body? Does the camera body stay up above the water? I, yes, yes, Incredible. it's out of the water, but it was super scary to film because the eyes really didn't support uh, too many. Well, I wondered about and, that. It didn't look that, that stable. No, it's it it's what like not. No, 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 it wasn't too thick, and it. <laughs> It, it gave terrible noise as well, I remember. So, you see, finally, there are lots of stories I can always tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But usually I like these kind of transition shots very well. Yeah. So I planned this uh, before as well. So it was in my script. So we just had to wait uh, for the right weather. And, of course, I was not sure that uh, we were going to be able to film the catfish underwater. But finally, we got the shot. So Zoltan, for someone who wants to become a wildlife cinematographer or a wildlife doc filmmaker, what are three things that they should be doing? Luckily, you can buy a camera right now. So that's the first step. It's, it's even with your iPhone, you can, you can film wildlife films. Start to make small stories and uh, go out to the nature with your camera. And basically, these are the three steps, uh, the basic steps. Uh, you, and then send this... Uh, footage to fest- send your films to film festivals so if they have ideas so get your hands on a camera go yes. out into nature and what's the third one send to film festivals make some short films yeah. you don't have to make an uh, entire production because you don't have the money and uh, and the resources for that just make some shorts and send it to film festivals or to some decision makers and sooner or later if you are going uh, if you are doing uh, nice stuff you will be so-called discovered <laughs> right okay. I, I truly believe this because i see with the young people ah. it's it really how it works zoltan what's up next for you where is the next environment that you're going to be shooting in actually it's very exciting because uh, first time ever i managed to put together a film for a cinema wildlife film so mm. it's going to be a cinema and we are filming wild horses the last uh, species which exist on earth uh, the travel it's a Polish named Pszczewalski horses 
And uh, it's a very interesting story. And we are going to film this in Hungary and in Mongolia because these guys, these horses, they went into extinction in mm. Mongolia. Mm. So only just very few left. And they were looking for a place for them. And they found the same environment in Hungary. Whoa. And they are breeding them and they are carrying them back to Mongolia. So actually, this is a success story. A very successful wow. story. Zoltan, when that film is finished, uh, could we have you on the show again? It's 2020 November. So Great. I'll, I'll put it on my calendar. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad that we had this conversation. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the documentary life. As I said, you know, I came by your name, you know, via um, one of our, our community Facebook groups, and uh, you came highly recommended, and I can certainly see why. What, what a lovely conversation. Oh, thanks. It was my pleasure, honestly. Really. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.